ASEAN's biggest digital tech conference is back. In celebration of 25 years of leading the nation's digital economy, MDEC presents the Malaysia Tech Month 2021. Now till 30th August, this virtual conference will bring you more than 300 internationally renowned speakers to unearth the latest digital trends and investment opportunities. Register now at mdec.my slash mtm2021. Malaysia Tech Month 2021. Making Malaysia heart of digital ASEAN. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and this is Matt Splained. Uh, not too long ago, uh, we did a story about uh, a robot cockroach, and it was probably the closest Matt Splained has ever come to being a bit of a crowd pleaser. So we asked him, more strange stories, Matt, about science and animals. So what's the killer story you're going to make us wait for this week? Well, I'm not sure that I've got a killer story for you this week, but I am going to start off with cockatoos, uh, just because I like this story so much. So apparently, Eastern Australia is experiencing an epidemic of residential bin looting by cockatoos. Of the, course. Yeah. The Max Planck Institute of Animal Behaviour in Germany, because that's who you go to when you have a problem with birds in Sydney, has been uh, studying the cockatoos since 2018. And this is based on a report by a guy called Richard Major, who is at the Australian Museum Research Institute in Sydney, who then sent the footage over to colleagues he had in Germany. And they put out the call to suburban residents in Sydney and Wollongong to send them footage of cockatoos opening dustbins. Um, just how unusual uh, is it for animals to open bins and you're not allowed to start a Tom John Jones song? <laughs> I knew I, you were going to do I don't know which one. Um, no, but I mean, all kinds of animals do, although most tend to be larger mammals who knock bins over and forage amongst what spills out. Right. Uh, Monkeys, obviously, because, you know, there's nothing that they can't open. Uh, in fact, you know, the Da Vinci Code would probably have been over in chapter one if the protagonist had been an ape. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting about the cockatoos is that a few individuals seem to have figured out a technique for getting into the bins. And other cockatoos have been learning from them and copying the technique for themselves. So at the start of the project, birds had been observed stealing from bins in just three suburbs. And by the end of 2019, there were reported sightings of bin diving birds in 44 suburbs around Sydney and Wollongong. What? Now, okay, so what makes these researchers think that the, the cockatoos are, are learning from one another rather than, you know, I don't know, figuring it out themselves? Well, because of the steps that are required in the process. So analyzing the video, it showed it to be a pretty complicated five-step action. The birds had to pry the lid up. They had to then open it and hold it while they walked to where they could flip it open because, you know, they've only got a beak. They haven't got hands. Yeah. So there are specific head and leg movements that are required. And then they actually have to shuffle around the top of the bin in order to get into position to do the different actions. So I think my favorite part of the story is the fact that there are geographical variations in the technique. 
And that's what gave the researchers the suspicion that a number of individuals in different locations figured it out at roughly the same time. And each has spread their own method to the surrounding cockatoo populations. So in theory, if that is true, you could track each variation down to that specific cockatoo zero. Now, I find this fascinating, and I know you do, but I'm not sure that everybody else is going to be enthralled with the idea of dumpster divers in their backyard. Well, that's true. And apparently the birds do create quite a mess because, you know, they're simply sorting through the garbage and they dump the bits they don't want onto the floor. Mm. But combating nature's ingenuity doesn't have any quick fixes because securing the lids on the bins would then make it difficult for the automated lifts on the lorries that empty them. So this is definitely round one to the birds. Indeed. Um, Okay, let's stick with uh, detecting animals. Apparently there are new ways to work out what animals are in the vicinity. Well, this is another story that well, at least I find really cool. Uh, As we pointed out before, the the researchers in Germany had to ask Sydney suburbanites to send them videos of the cockatoos opening bins because it's quite hard to work out what animals are in what place. Typically, our our methods for tracking animals have been quite invasive or extremely labour-intensive. They've involved trapping the animals, tagging them with GPS chips. Uh, You might have to venture out into very remote territory and set up camera traps. And of course, you then have to go back to them again to collect the footage. Or you simply have to have large teams on the ground to observe which animals are actually around. Which can often be quite hit and miss, I imagine. Well, that's been one of the major drawbacks. You know, you tend to concentrate on the group of animals or an individual that you're tracking. So it's been quite hard to assess the health of an entire animal population in any given area. I get a feeling that this is one of those moments where you kind of go off on a weird tangent about, I don't know, face recognition software for bats or, you know, badgers or something. Oh, badger recognition technology. Wow, that would be absolutely awesome. You know, I I don't even know how possible that would be. You know, I guess one of the good things about humans is that there are billions of us. So that means Mm. it's relatively easy to assemble large data sets for neural networks to learn from. I'm not sure if that would be the same case, say, for Malayan tigers, where the population is very small. And the individuals are very hard to locate, to identify and add to the database in the first place. But, you know, we do know that many species of animals do have unique identifiers and signifiers, whether it's markings in their fur or plumage or facial or other physical characteristics. Ah, thank you. Uh, You had me worried there for a moment, Matt. Well, you know, it's definitely something that I'll have to look into for a future show. I'll ask uh, some of my wife's naturalist friends if anyone is doing that kind of research. But honestly, this technology is equally cool. It works on the premises of uh, eDNA, which is environmental DNA. And this approach has been pioneered to work out the health of waterways, rivers and lakes. So the idea is you take a sample of water and you analyze it for the DNA traces and see what comes up. Because that water sample is full of discarded cells, fecal matter, and other animal waste products. So the technique has proved remarkably effective, especially as it's allowed researchers to determine the presence of species that are often, you know, rare and hard to find. Mm. Because, 
you know, the best way to do this kind of research before was to try and net whatever was in the water and log a sample of the inhabitants and extrapolate the the inhabitants and the health of the uh, the ecosystem from there. Got it. So how would you do something similar on the land, uh, you know, with a soil sample? Well, I guess that would be one way to go, but you'd probably get a lot of information about earthworms and not so much about the animals within the locality. Not that earthworms aren't important, but, you know, that this, I think, is a much more elegant solution. You simply vacuum the air. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, researchers in Toronto and Copenhagen have found that they were working on similar eDNA-based research, so they teamed up for these experiments using very fine air filters they vacuum air samples and they just analyze the filters to see what DNA traces have been left behind. Uh, they did their initial field tests at zoos because this gives them the advantage of knowing what species they should actually be detecting. So they mm -hmm. have that benchmark. And to find the kind of optimal time span, they filtered the air for different time periods ranging from 30 minutes up to about 30 hours to see how much DNA was harvested within each of those time periods. Um, what kind of a, a, a range are we talking about here? Well, in the initial tests in Copenhagen Zoo, um, these were outdoor tests. The researchers discovered that uh, most of the expected species within a range of about 300 metres were present in the filters, which, you know, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. But in the indoor tests, which they did inside one of the tropical houses, they even picked up trace DNA from guppies in a fish tank. And that really is beyond impressive. And they've repeated the tests at a few more zoos, and they've come up with pretty much the same results wherever they've tested it. And when they've done it in the wild, what kind of results have we seen? Well, the plan is to go out literally into the field using this equipment and to start checking for various uh, species. They're pretty confident. Uh, the eDNA approach uh, in terms of the analysis is a proven one, and that adaptation for land use has been pretty robust so far. Um, it's got me thinking, though, you know, could, could we do something like this uh, be, and could it be used to identify uh, humans? Well, I kind of wondered the same thing, and it would be pretty scary if it could. You know, if someone set up giant air filters all over the place linked to a national DNA database register, mm. uh, certainly I don't think that's practical with the kind of technology we have now, especially as the researchers aren't sure exactly what it is that they're catching in the filters. They aren't sure whether it's similar to the water-based eDNA sampling, where they know that they're capturing cells or whether what they've got is actually airborne DNA, whether the cells have been shredded in the air and the filters are just capturing the DNA within those air particles. Mm. So I'm not sure over what kind of distances it might be possible for your DNA to still be present in that air sample, or whether something as simple as lending somebody your jacket or somebody getting into a grab that you might have been in earlier that day might cause your DNA to be present in an area that you haven't actually visited. So I do think this is one dystopian scenario that we don't need to worry about today. Oh, thank, 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 thank you. <laughs> when we come back, weevils and termites. Uh, it sounds like a snack Matt would have. Uh, we'll be right back here on uh, Matt's Plain here on BFM 89.9.
Farah Malaysia, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9 of the Business Station. I'm Rich Bradbury and this is Matt Splain. And it's another creepy, crawly week on Matt Splain. Um, before the break, we were vacuuming our DNA out of the air. Um, so maybe it's time for something a little bit more relaxing. Yeah, I don't know, um, aromatherapy perhaps? Well, there's a weird connection for me on this story because I've spent the last few weeks doing some work for a wellness company with a large aromatherapy business. So it's nice to feature a story about essential oils. And this one is a a Malaysian story, so it's even nicer. Researchers at UMT Trangganu have discovered that an invasive species that decimates palm oil plantations can be halted with something as simple as clove and thyme oil. Uh, The red weevil, uh, which affects palm plantations is recognized as one of the the world's most invasive species. It impacts date and coconut palms as well as palm oil. And finding new pesticides to control them is becoming a lot more difficult, partly because consumers as well as governments are demanding that fewer chemicals be sprayed on their foods, Mm -hmm. but also because of controls on the pollutants that are released into the atmosphere or allowed to leach into our soils. But why clove and and thyme oil? What's specifically about them? Well, we know that certain plants and oils can be used to repel insects. I mean, that's, you know, common knowledge. And the development of bioinsecticides has become very big business, partly as a result of, uh, as I said, those controls on chemical pesticides. And of course, insects often adapt over generations to chemical insecticides and pesticides and that seems to happen a lot more slowly with bioinsecticides and of course because they are natural they tend to break down faster than chemical concoction pesticides and they leave fewer pollutants behind them so during a study of 225 larvae that was conducted over two weeks at uh, umt Tranganu, the larvae were fed blocks of palm coated with various oils And it was the ones that were fed on the clove and the thyme-soaked palm uh, that worked the most. They consumed around 35% less than uh, other blocks. So the next step is figuring out how we can actually deliver these pesticides. Why can't we just spray it? Well, from what I understand, as long as the tree isn't already infested, yes, you can spray the outside of it and that will deter the pests. Mm. However, if the weevils are already eating through the tree, then you actually have to inject the solution into the palm itself. Yeah, exactly. So that's a lot more complicated. So there's probably a bit more research that needs to be done to come up with a formula that can actually be used for treatment in this way. All right, uh, let's stick with pests then. Uh, I believe we've uh, more trees and more insects. Well, termites, yeah. I mean, usually nobody has anything good to say about termites, uh, (laughs) you know, especially when you hear that they're in your roof and they're literally eating you out of uh, house and home. But termites are amazing creatures. Uh, A few years ago, we did an episode on uh, so-called superwoods. These are treated wood products that uh, are as strong as steel, but much lighter. Now, these were created by tweaking or manipulating the lignin in the wood to make it stronger. And that material that can be as strong as steel, well, a termite digests that really easily. And if you think that's no mean feat, 
try chewing on a chunk of your dining table. Which brings us to this story. Yeah, well, Chinese researchers have found that a certain species of termite not only digests the wood, but microbes in their gut can even break down the creosote that wood is often treated with for weatherproofing and, mm. and uh, uh pest uh, resistance or whatever. So the species Coptotermis formosanus is categorized as a super termite because it lives in extremely large colonies uh, and it's very hungry. So the researchers isolated bacteria from the termite's guts and found four strains that could decompose creosote. So they then cultured the samples and set them to work on piles of creosote-soaked sawdust. After 12 days, they found the bacteria had completely removed two of the harmful chemicals in creosote, the naphthalene and the phenol. Fascinating. But not that I'm interested in termite bacteria. What practical uses might this have? Well, it can actually assist with the production of biofuels and biogas. So uh, anaerobic digester systems, these are what are typically used to melt down organic waste into the biogases and fuels, and they typically use methane-producing microbes to break down that material. But methane struggles with substances like wood, where there are high concentrations of cellulose and lignin. And when you add chemicals like creosote into that mix as well, you just end up with contaminated biofuel. So the termite microbes help to break down the lignocellulose and remove pollutants? Yeah, bang on. So the next stage is to scale the experiments up. But even without that ability to break down the material into biofuel, think about the amount of treated wood that's out there in the world, everything from railway mm. sleepers to fencing and gates, you know, anywhere we use wood for outdoor industrial type applications. All of those products usually end up in a landfill where those pollutants leach back into the soil. So Good work, termites. I mean, the thing is, though, I mean, how do I know that you're not just, you know, lying and you didn't make up that last story? Well, perhaps it's because you're not a dog or a young <laughs> child. Fairly obvious statement. But okay. um, according to researchers at the University of Vienna, dogs will ignore people who are lying. So the researchers performed a classic bait-and-switch experiment that has previously been carried out on young children, Japanese macaques, and chimpanzees, which is strange. I mentally group all those creatures together too. Uh, 260 dogs were trained to find food in one of two covered bowls. They were guided by a, a human, a communicator, a person that wasn't previously known to them. And that person would touch the bowl filled with food and make positive assertions saying, oh, you know, nice food, try this one. Mm, so tasty. Over, yeah, exactly tasty. I should just have said that. Uh, over time, with the communicator showing them which bowl the food was hidden in, they start to build a relationship of trust. Yeah, this does sound a bit like a classic Matt Armitage experiment. What, building trust only to shatter it remorselessly? Yeah, it does Something rather like that, sound yeah. like me, doesn't it? <laughs> um, with the trust established, a second person would be introduced, a, a Richard, we can call him, ah. and uh, that person would interfere with the food, moving it from one bowl to the other. In some instances, the communicator would be present when the food was transferred, but in others, they would briefly leave the room, so they weren't there to see it happen. And then when they came back in, the communicator 
would recommend the now empty bowl to the dog and again say, tasty. But dogs have got noses. I'm not going to do that joke about how do they smell. Um, but <laughs> yes, this is an experiment about trust and not smell. So typically when the experiments have been done with children and monkeys, they would ignore the communicator when he or she recommended the empty bowl, but only when the communicator had been absent from the room. Um, in other words, if they felt that it was, I don't know, an honest mistake? Yeah, they would simply overrule the advice and select the bowl with the bowl with the food in. However, ah. if the person had been in the room, and even though they knew the communicator was recommending something that was actually empty, their trust in the person seemed to trump their own judgment. And more often than not, they would actually select the empty bowl that was recommended to them. I wonder what childhood Matt would have done. Well, firstly, I was never a child, uh, and I'm willing to defend that statement with litigation. Uh, <laughs> secondly, I always assume people are lying to me. It's sort of my superpower. Uh, I would probably never have selected the bottle with food in and developed that trust relationship in the first place. Hungry but proud, as they used to call me at school, <laughs> where I was never a child. Uh, during these experiments with the Austrian team, in the case of that honest mistake where the communicator wasn't in the room, about half the dogs relied on trust uh, and were directed to the empty bowl. However, where the communicator was present when the food was switched, the dog simply ignored the advice and went straight for the bowl with the food in. They knew they were being lied to. And mm. however you look at it, that's the smart move. So the dogs respond in the opposite way to children. Yeah, the trust remained intact in about half of the cases where there was that honest mistake. Whereas young humans and monkeys just ignored the well-meaning advice. But those social cues were broken in the event of a lie. So just remember that the next time you promise to take your dog for a walk and you settle in to watch Netflix instead, your dog knows what a liar you are. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, are we sticking with animals for the uh, last story? No, I'll do a human interest one in case any interested humans are still listening. Mm. Um We've been hearing about uh, scientists' largely fruitless attempts to decode whale song and dolphin chatter for decades, but now scientists are trying to turn our inability into an advantage. Researchers at Tianjin University in China have found a way to code messages into what sounds like dolphin calls. Uh, because there's typically so much uh, marine chatter from animals, military sonar systems usually tune them out, allowing this system to be used as a covert means of communication. Hasn't this been done before? Yeah, but usually the codes were developed in such a way that it was quite obvious because dolphins tend to talk in overlapping patterns of clicks and whistles, whereas the coded messages that mimic them tended to be based either on clicks or whistles. So anyone listening for patterns would quickly detect that something was going on. The team in China has devised a new approach using two coded sequences that were then overlapped. So different parts of the message are carried in those different sequences, and again, it mm. overlaps. And then they're deciphered at the other end as a single sequence. And how effective um, exactly is it? 
Well, it fooled an AI that was programmed to look for coded sequences within that marine noise. However, it isn't the most efficient means of communication. It's relatively slow compared to many modern underwater communication methods. So it's not likely to be a replacement for any of the technologies we currently have. But in situations where you have to send a small amount of data and you really want to avoid any kind of detection, you don't want anyone to know that a message has been sent, dolphins may be our key. Fascinating stuff this week, Matt. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I'm always happy to fascinate people. I still think the uh, garbage dancing cockatoos was my favourite story of the week, though. Mine as well. Um, There's actually uh, quite a few videos... uh, of it online if you if you search for it it's really fascinating to see because they do actually dance around the tops of the bins and then of course <laughs> they make a mess spraying the garbage all over the place so you know there, there's two things to laugh at there wonderful stuff of course you can find matt on instagram and on twitter at culture matt you can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about culture pop and its consulting services and if you missed any part of this show don't forget you can download the podcast wherever you normally listen to it i recommend the bfm app it's available the apple app store or google play for bfm 89.9 my name is rich bradbury Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.